you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 8. Hold your spot there. Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be this morning. And uh, stepping outside of the series that we've been doing for a couple of months or so, the Nuts and Bolts series, uh, we're going to shift gears today and uh, look at a message that I, I, I honestly, I feel, I don't want to be overly <laughs> dramatic here, but, you know, just uh, I almost felt like God kind of like grabbed me by the hand and just walked me to this passage. And it just spoke so clearly in the midst of all of this circumstance with all of the, you know, the, the uh, coronavirus and all those details and what everybody's been feeling. I, I just feel like this passage fits so well. So Romans chapter 8, go ahead and hold your spot there. This has been... Man, I'm telling you, we, we've been through a lot of stuff in our community and in our city with hurricanes and uh, flood and uh, tornadoes. And I mean, we've just kind of been through a lot of stuff. This is just a weird feeling. I mean, it's just so surreal. And uh, it, it, I've, I've learned a few things along the way that I had not learned before. Uh, one thing I've learned in the past few days is that apparently toilet paper is a great commodity, right? <laughs> I was at Walmart last night, and uh, I mean, the shelves just empty. I mean, bare. There's nothing, nothing on those shelves at all. So I mean, that's one thing I've learned. I don't know if that really helps me in this journey called life or not, but that is one thing I've learned. Another thing I've learned is that handshakes are way overrated. Now, I mean, it is so much better to, like, kick people, you know, and hit elbows and fist bump and that kind of just wave. I mean, it's just, uh, it's more, more fun, I mean, in a way. So handshakes are kind of overrated. Hey, another thing I've learned through this is that 20 seconds is a lot longer than I thought it was. Right? I mean, 20 seconds is a, it's like a little less than a lifetime when you're washing your hands. And I realize how dirty my hands probably really are because usually it's like squirt, squirt, eh, rinse, and off you go. But at 20 seconds, man, it feels like three sermons to me. It takes forever to get through that 20 seconds. So that's been helpful, uh, I guess, uh, learning that. And then uh, the, the last thing I've learned, maybe this is for those that are in uh, much higher positions, right, than I am. But if you're going to tell people, if you don't want people to not touch their face, don't tell us not to touch our face, you know, because it's just, right, until you told me, I had no desire to even touch my, all of, you're right now probably really wrestling with that just because I went there, just because I mentioned it, but we learned a few things along the way, but, but, but here's, here's what I want to do with this message. I, I want us just to kind of go a little deeper and ask some hard questions because here's what this has done for me. This has really caused me to ask some hard questions in my life, and I think probably for you, it's caused you to grapple with some pretty, pretty deep subjects at the same time as well, that when the whole entire world is on the same page, that is either doing battle with or trying to avoid or some combination of, of the two, a virus that has become now a global issue it brings certain things to the surface for us as believers that we have to do business with. And there are a few questions that I want to start with this morning that I'm going to read to you, and then we're going to move our way into a passage of Scripture that I, speaks, that I think speaks to all three of these questions. Uh, the first hard question is this. Is there an assumption amongst us as believers that for those who have either been infected by the coronavirus or for those who have ultimately died as a result of the coronavirus? Is there an assumption for us as believers that they apparently did not believe in God or somehow did not have enough faith? I've seen, as you probably have as well on social media, which is an excellent place to go in times like this, 
You know, I've, I've seen it rolled out, you know, just pray this passage of Scripture, you know, and I'm sure beyond that, you know, or, or, or say this certain prayer or memorize this verse, right? And, and, and the assumption is that God is going to ultimately provide protection for you if you do that. And the, and, and the picture there is that there is going to be a bubble if you just pray this prayer or recite this passage, there's going to be a bubble of protection that's going to go over you, which then we have to say, if that's what we believe, then apparently all those who have been infected and ultimately have died must not have had faith or must not have known God. Maybe you've had to do business with that. Maybe you've had to grapple with that specifically. A second hard question, has God promised to us as believers that we will never experience illness or sorrow or struggle or difficulty? Has God made that promise to us when He, when he promises in Psalm 23 to lead us and to guide us and to shepherd us, when He makes other promises in Scripture, is part of that promise that we will never experience times like what we are experiencing today around the world? Is that part of His promise? And then I think a third question is then, based on how we answer those first two questions, does that mean then that we're relegated to just hopelessness in our lives if those first two questions aren't answered the way we wish they would be? You know, we've all probably been part of this story in one way or another, either by adding to the uh, anxiety or by the witness and the testimony of our lives. Because this, this circumstance in which we find ourselves with this virus has affected every single one of us in certain ways. We've all seen things change in an instant. Where we were last Sunday, this time is vastly different than where we are today. The news that came out and that began rolling almost came out more quickly than we could keep up with. I was actually texting with someone in our church as everything was breaking loose. I believe it was Wednesday night about 8 o'clock and things were happening and things were moving and things were changing Literally before our very eyes, in the span of about 35 minutes, it seemed like the whole world had shifted in a variety of ways. And we've been, we, we've been a part of that, right? We've seen that. We've witnessed that. We've, we've listened to it. We've viewed it as it has all unfolded. And, and I think there's a principle that comes out of that. In fact, quite a few principles that come out of this passage of Scripture. And I hope you're going to jot these down. We're going to look at a lot of them. I usually like to roll out one, maybe two principles, and then kind of build on those. Today's going to be different. I don't know that I've, that I've preached as many simple principles as I'm going to share this morning, but chapter 8 in the book of Romans is just absolutely full, and uh, we don't plan to get you out late. In fact, we got out early last service, but I do want to move through this passage. The first principle I hope you'll jot down is this, that, that your sense of being in control in any area of your life is just an illusion, right? If you have any sense that you are in control of any phase of your life at all, that is an illusion. That is not reality. It was amazing to me to see, again, in the news as everything unfolded and to hear stories. I heard someone tell me of a person that they know that uh, outside of our church, someone that they know is a family member, actually, and uh, it's a friend of mine from out of town. He said his family member lost $55,000 in one day as a result of where the stock market went like that. Some of you, I'm sure, have probably experienced something similar, maybe less, maybe more. I have no idea. But it was a reminder that if we think that we're in control of our finances because we have money in the bank or, or a retirement that has been consistently growing, 
and we feel like we've got ourselves in a nice financial position, listen, you are not in control the way you maybe thought you were in control of that previously. We're not in control. You, I remember reading a book a, uh, a month or so ago, and I actually alluded to this book about a, a singer who was the lead singer for Audio Adrenaline, and, and uh, he was on the biggest platforms around the world, and he, he, he uh, led this, this, uh, this group in their heyday, in the heyday of Christian music, some would say, at least in that genre, and uh, they played before sold-out crowds. They sold a, uh, a, a bazillion albums, it seemed, right, and uh, back in the 90s. And for 20 years, he was on the top of the heap, and he traveled the world, and he, and he was the lead singer. I mean, he was the lead vocal for this group, Audio Adrenaline, and, and yet it, it, it seemed like in an instant, he lost his voice, and along with losing his voice, he lost his career, and along with losing his career, he lost his platform. <laughs> and God would ultimately exchange that platform for one that was far uh, less visible, one that was far more humble in nature. And in some ways, he would probably say it was even a greater platform that he had. But in an instant, he seemingly lost everything. And he made the comment in that book, he said, we are not in control as much as we think we are. And I think this past week has proven that to us. It doesn't matter if you're a CEO of a company, you're a CEO who's not in control. <laughs> It doesn't matter if you are wealthy, you're a wealthy individual who's not in control. It doesn't matter what your set or stage in life is. You are a person and I'm a person that we are not in control. Take a look at what it says here beginning in the book of Romans chapter 8. Paul is writing here to a group of Christians scattered around a city of Rome that was kind of the hub of its world, so to speak. The Roman Empire ran the show, the city of Rome. They said all roads led to Rome for a reason. The city of Rome influenced the world at this particular stage in the first century. And Paul is writing now what many would call the treatise of the Christian faith in the book of Romans. I mean, it covers all, the, all, all of the details of the Christian life. It's all the high points. And, and many would say that this chapter, Romans chapter 8, would be on the Mount Rushmore of Bible chapters. There are over 1,900 chapters in the Bible. Many, maybe even myself included, if I were to give it a little more thought, would place Romans chapter 8 on that Mount Rushmore, the top four chapters in all the Bible. It is a loaded, powerful chapter. And though we're not going to see every single verse in chapter 8 this morning, we're going to look at a large block that I think speaks so clearly into our circumstance in these days as, as we nationally and globally face this virus and as it has implications right down to us as, as individuals and as families. This chapter speaks so incredibly loudly into the midst of all that. And the first thing I think it reminds us of is that we are not in control. Look at what it says in chapter 8 here in the book of Romans. Let's begin part of the way through in verse 18. Look at what Paul writes there. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul sets out a contrast, and that contrast on one side of the scale are sufferings. On the other side of the scale is going to be ultimately glory, so to speak. In other words, Paul is making the simple case that we are not in control. We live in a world where we are going to face suffering. It's going to come. 
And yet for us, what we have to keep in mind ultimately, if we read through the rest of this chapter, as we're going to see in just a moment, is that when we move through times of suffering, that God ultimately has a purpose and God has a greater good that he is going to work out of it. Jesus told us that sufferings were going to come. Look at what it says in Romans or or in the book of John chapter 16. Take a look at what, what Jesus himself would say. Let's move to John 16 verse 33. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. He says, not in your bank account, not in your career, not in your athletic accomplishment, not in your work accomplishment, not in your family life, not in your relationships. He says, I've spoken all these things, Jesus says, so that in me, in me alone, you may have peace. Peace is not found in health. Peace is not found in wealth. Peace is not found in accomplishment, right? He says, in me that you'll have peace. In the world, you have tribulation, It's one of the things I love about the Bible. It doesn't gloss over the hardships of life. Jesus himself said, and he also knew like no other in this world, you're going to face tribulation. He says, but take courage, take courage. And here's why, because I personally have overcome the world. So we have to understand and we have to keep in mind that for us, even as Christians, we simply are not in control. But principle number two, what we find is that our present suffering should always remind us ultimately of a future rest that's on its way, right? When we have any suffering that goes on in this life, and it doesn't matter whether it's virus related, whether it's the suffering of having lost a loved one or having a relationship fall apart or having financial difficulties or marriage problems or whatever may be the case, it doesn't matter that when you go through a time of suffering in your life, it should instantly be a reminder that yes, this life is but a vapor and the sufferings that I face on this side ultimately should remind me that there's going to be a future rest that's coming, that God's got something planned for me as a follower of Christ that is far better than anything this world could ultimately provide. Look at what Paul says in another book, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Take take a look at this. Man, I love this passage. He says, we should therefore not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Hey, the outside might be falling apart, (laughs) to which I can say amen more than I could five years ago. Right. The outside may be falling apart, but on the inside, he says, the inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. There's that contrast again. There's affliction, there's suffering, there's difficulty that's producing for us, Paul says, an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. We can't even imagine, we can't fully comprehend what it's going to be like when God gives us this reward through our relationship with Christ. We can't even imagine. There's no comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so when we go through times of suffering, challenge, when our cage is rattled, whether it's illness, whether it's, again, regardless of the issue, for us as believers, man, that should remind us that there's a future rest coming when those things are not going to be the issues the way they are today. And the New Testament believers, they look towards that view. You read Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about those who lived out their faith, some of whom died for their faith, and yet they were looking ahead. This was not their world, this was not their home, this was not the life that God necessarily intended for all of eternity. There was a future rest that drove them, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. 
Principle number three that Romans 8 teaches us is that evil and suffering shouldn't surprise us. Shouldn't surprise us. Shouldn't come out of left field. Verse 19, verse 20, look at what Paul writes. He says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. What is Paul referencing here? I think Paul is going all the way back to the third chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. If you remember what happened there, Adam and Eve sinned against God, right? Genesis 1 and 2, perfect. Paradise. I mean, perfect world. No sin whatsoever. That was God's design, God's intent. Genesis 3, when sin came in, if you remember that story, that true story, what happened was after Adam and Eve sinned against God, God ultimately began to share with them the consequences of their sin. There would be consequences for Eve and for women. There would be consequences for Adam, for men. And there would also be consequence not only for the enemy, but upon the, upon the creation itself. And what God said to Adam was that now your work will become painful toil and the ground will produce thorns and thistles. And it's not going to be an easy uh, opportunity just to care for the creation that God had made. Now it's painful toil. And and the creation is going to even suffer the consequences of sin. And ever since that time, we've seen exactly that live out. That's why we have tsunamis that wipe out whole entire villages of people. That's why we have tornadoes and hurricanes that have wreaked havoc right here in our very own community. It's not because God is out of control. God is very much in control. But it's because he has allowed the consequences of sin that even have implications for his very creation to run their course. Viruses that make their way from one side of the globe all the way across to the other side in a matter of weeks. It's not because God is out of control. It's not because God's asleep on the throne somewhere. It's that, that, that's the outflow of sin. And when we go through suffering and when we do, do combat with evil in this world, it shouldn't surprise us. Paul says this is the outflow of sin. And where you see sin, you're going to see evil and you're going to see suffering. That, that, that's, that's not surprising. It shouldn't rattle the cage of a believer to say, oh my goodness, does God not love us anymore? Look at what's happening. No, it doesn't rattle the cage. It only proves evidence of what God said all along. In the day you eat of this fruit, you're going to die. Right? Sin always wreaks consequences. Look at what Paul says a little bit further, verse 21 and verse 22. He says that the creation itself also, he says, this is our hope, will be set free from its slavery to corruption. Right now, the creation is, 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 looks like a fallen world. But one day it'll be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. What a visual Paul uses. Paul was a very visual communicator. There may be no better visual than that, the pains of childbirth as demonstrated and reflective of what our creation experiences under the fallenness of sin. Evil and suffering shouldn't surprise us. Evil and suffering also, however, should not overwhelm us. Look at what he says in verse 23. Not only this, but also we ourselves. I'm not talking about just the creation now. We ourselves as part of God's creation. Having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan 
within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Paul again goes there and he says there's going to be a day when that fallen body is going to be restored, right? When your life is going to show evidence of redemption. So the evil and the suffering today shouldn't, shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't, it shouldn't overwhelm us. Principle five, yet even still the follower of Christ today operates from a perspective of hope. From a perspective of hope. Even with all of that, we don't run around like we've lost. <laughs> we don't run around anxious and fearful. We still operate from a position, from a platform of hope. Hope is still the starting point for the Christian. Hope is still page one. Hope is still the home base. Hope is where we start. Look at what Paul says, verse 24 and verse 25. Look how he alludes to this. Four times he uses this word hope in two verses. He says, for in hope we've been saved. He's just talking about a very bleak picture. The earth is fallen. You're fallen. The earth shows the effects of sin. You show the effects of sin. He says, but it's in hope that we've been saved. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we don't see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Paul is just, just spouting out hope, 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 hope. What is he talking about, this hope that we don't see? What is he referring to when he says, even in the midst of your fallenness, even in the midst of all of this difficulty, you still have hope, Christian, in a way that you can't fully see? What is he talking about? Look at verse 28. Jump ahead a few verses. This is the hope. He says that we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Man, I'm telling you, some of you have been a Christian for so long and you were raised in church. And you've heard this verse so long, so many years, and you memorize it in a couple of different translations, and you know it so well, you've missed the impact as though you've read it for the first time. Read this verse for the first time in the midst of these days in which we find ourselves and be reminded that no matter what comes our way, you, as a part of the creation of God, who in the moment that you laid down your sin and you gave your life to Jesus, you were then embraced into the part of the family of God. You weren't just a part of the creation. You then became a child of God, that that same God who created you, died for you, rose for you, saved you, redeemed you, has a place waiting for you, is the same God who in the midst of this fallen world promises that he will take all of the junk that comes our way, whether virus, whether it's death-related, regardless of what it is, and he somehow, in a way that the only one true living God can do, is going to mix all of that together and work good out of it. Only God can do that. <laughs> Only God can do that, which brings us to a place that's where our hope is. There are people that you know, friends of yours, family members, who reached more people through their death than they did through their life. And they walked with Jesus in humble fashion, and when they left this world for their reward, it became evident to everyone what made them who they were, and it was Jesus. There are people in history that had the most humble of platforms that lived life in quiet service to Christ who ultimately as a result because of the way they lived and because of the way they died ultimately reached more people in their death than they did in their life. There are people that have stood on a platform like this and tried to impact folks 
And it was only when they walked through a trial, through their faith and through their trust and through their testimony, that they reached far more from that platform of suffering than they did any other platform in life. And it's a reminder for us that for us as believers, we operate out of, it's our home base, it's page one. We operate out of a perspective of hope as followers of Jesus. Some of you, I'm sure, are readers. And maybe if you've ever read a book, you can relate to this, that, speaking to the ladies now, because the guys don't really read that much, but um, I know, thank you, Canis. Was that Canis? Yeah, whoever that was. Okay, Charlton. That if you've ever read a novel or if you've ever read a, say, a, um, a nonfiction book, right, a, a true life story, and maybe you've gotten immersed in the first 20 pages or so and, and you've just sort of really gravitated towards a certain character and you've thought, man, I, I, I've got to know what happens to this person. I've got to know what happens in this book. I can't read the rest of this book, these 200 pages. I've got to find out what's going to happen. And so you've, what you've done is you move to the back of the book and you read the ending so that if that person just still survives or if they finally come through the other side and everything's okay, you're going to go back and finish the book. And what happened was you read the ending and, and because the ending finished well, it shaded every other thing that you read when you went back to the starting point. Everything you read from that point on, because you knew how it ended, was ultimately shaded in its perspective because you knew how everything came to a conclusion. Let me just remind you as a Christian that there is an end to this book called the Bible. And when you jump to the end of this story, this true story, what is waiting for us is yet to unfold. It is in a day yet to come. But when we read the end of the story, what we find is, is that if we've given our lives to Jesus, man, we're going to be just fine. And it's going to be a life of blessing for us in the presence of the God who made us so big and beyond anything we can even imagine that it should fuel everything that we do in the way we live our lives today. And so when we look to the end of the story, what we find is victory, what we find is reward, what we find is life in the presence of the God who made us. And if you don't know Jesus today, that in itself is the motivation for you to come to a place where you lay down your sin and give your life to Christ right now. When we get to the end of the book, it ends really, really well for us. And what Paul says here in Romans chapter 8 is that we are at a place for us as Christians where we operate from a home base of hope. We never are at a place where we are without hope. It doesn't matter. Based on everything he said, those who are living in the epicenter of all of this in China, if they have a relationship with Jesus, are not without hope. Principle number six, as we fight in this life through the evil that comes, through suffering, through hardship, through difficulty, we fight, or rather we never fight alone. You're not in a fight by yourself. When your cage gets rattled and your faith gets weakened, you never fight alone. Look at what Paul says. He's gaining speed here as he moves through chapter eight. Look at what he says in verse uh, Verse 26, he says, in the same way, the Spirit, Spirit also helps our weakness. See, when you prayed and gave your life to Jesus, trusted what he did on the cross for your forgiveness, what happened was the Holy Spirit, God, came to live within you. And he took residence in you, and he's never leaving. That, that's why when you, when you give in to temptation, when we do that, there's this check in our spirit, and we feel a little bit guilty. We feel uneasy, like I shouldn't have done that. That's the Holy Spirit. That's God. 
because he lives in you. He's always with you, and he's saying, don't go that way. It's, it's going to cost you. That's not the life I want for you. There's better. And what Paul says here is that in the same way we believers indwelt with the Spirit of God, that that Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we should. You ever been there? You didn't know what to pray? I mean, life had bought him out so badly, he didn't even know the words to, to come up with. But he says, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. The God himself, in a way I can't understand, I can't properly uh, explain how that passage plays itself out. But what I do know is that God teaches me in those two verses that I'm never at a place where I'm having to make my way through life alone on my own. That his spirit ultimately prays, intercedes for me. He says that he's, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Whether you are moving through hardship, whether you're moving through financial difficulty, whether you're facing marital issues, whether you have lost a loved one, or whether you are living in fear and anxiety over all of this that's happening lately with the coronavirus, you never are at a place, Christian, where you fight alone. God is always, always, always with you. Principle number seven, yet God is firmly in control. Firmly in control. <laughs> Verse 29, look how he explains this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. If you ever wonder what's God's will for my life, does he want me to be this or that? Does he want me to live here or there? Should I marry this person or should I be single? Whatever it may be, God will sort all that out for you, but the overarching purpose of God for your life is that you and I be molded into the image of Jesus, that we reflect him. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. These whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. He declared not guilty. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Let me ask this question. Does that sound like the operations of a God who's out of control? <laughs> Does that sound like a God who's lost control in some way? No, it doesn't. This is a God who has a plan. This is a God who is working his plan ultimately to perfection. And even though part of that plan has been to allow sin to run its course and the creation itself to feel the weight of that sin, even there he is in control and he will step into and has stepped into that to bring redemption for those who ultimately know him. God is firmly in control. Principle number eight, and so the follower of Christ ultimately cannot lose. It is an impossibility. The follower of Christ cannot lose. And this is where it gets a bit uncomfortable because we have a different definition of winning in this finite life than God does from an eternal perspective. Oh, but God, what if I contract this illness? Does that mean you've lost? God, what if I ultimately pass away from this or some other event that comes in my life? I'm going to live in fear and I'm going to live in anxiety because I don't know what's going to happen and I might die one day. We're all going to die one day. Does that mean we lose? 
I'm not trying to be frivolous, and I'm not trying to be pie in the sky. I think Romans 8 has its feet firmly planted in reality. And I think the picture is whether Old Testament saints or New Testament saints, if you were gathered them together as a bunch, even the ones who ultimately gave their life as martyrs for the sake of the gospel, and if you were to ask them now at least 2,000 years later, hey, did you lose? Hey, Hebrews 11 saints, some of you that got sawed in half for, for your faith, some of you who were beheaded for your faith, hey, 2,000 years later, now that you've experienced 2,000 years of history in the presence of God, tell us, did you lose back then? <laughs> they would say, what's this 2,000 years? Time doesn't mean anything anymore. And no, we didn't lose. Because we've been in the presence of the God who made us, experiencing the reward that he set aside for us in a place that he went to prepare for us. No, we very much won. Thank you so much for asking. <laughs> and so what Romans 8 teaches us is the follower of Christ ultimately cannot lose. I don't want to face hardship. I don't want to face suffering. I don't want to raise my hand first to say, oh, yeah, just bring it my way. I'd be glad for it. None of us are there. But hopefully we know, based on this chapter in Scripture, that if it makes its way as an invasion into our life, that we will still win in the end. And we will not fight alone. And we will always have hope. Verse 31 through verse 37. Man, Paul is so specific. He covers everything here. In light of everything he said in this chapter, he says, What then shall we say to these things? Remember, he's writing to a group of believers in the city of Rome, most of whom probably were slaves in the Roman Empire, in that city. So what do we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised? Who's at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Paul doesn't have his head in the sand. He's not saying, oh, pray this prayer and read this chapter and God's going to put a bubble over your life. No, he looks at believers in the Roman Empire in the city of Rome itself and says, I know you've walked through tribulation. I know you've walked through distress and persecution and famine and you've lost virtually everything and some of you have even died and you face physical threats of physical violence. I know the world in which you live. There's not a bubble around you. But at the same time, I also know that just as it is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. You're not a group of just beat down people who have no victory. You're a group of people who face hardship like everybody else does, who have hope and who have assurance and who have a relationship with God, who have the presence of the Holy Spirit interceding for you, and you will not lose no matter what. Which with the final crescendo, he closes with these last two verses verse 38 and verse 39. So I'm convinced, Paul says, <laughs> that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, and just in case I missed anything, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. (laughs) So we rest, and we trust, and we praise, and we pray, and we serve, and we go, and we live. Because the measure of life is never measured in our health or in our wealth. It is measured in the degree to which we live our days to the glory of the God who made us, died for us, rose for us, redeemed us, blesses us, uses all things for good, and has a place waiting for us for one day. That's the measure of life. So we close with the three questions I started with. (laughs) Do we assume that everybody who's already been infected or has died because of this virus just didn't know God or didn't have enough faith? No, we don't. We live in a fallen world. Has God promised believers that we'll never suffer illness, hardship, or harm? No, he hasn't. Eleven of those twelve disciples died martyrs' deaths. Same way their Savior did. Question number three, are we then relegated to hopelessness? Not at all. (laughs) Because through Christ, no matter what may come, we are more than conquerors because of him who loved us. And who loves us still. Let's pray. Lord, it had been real easy today to jump up here and say everything's going to be okay. It had been real easy to jump up here and quote a verse, to paint a picture that somehow this is going to avoid all of us because we prayed hard enough or had enough faith or believed in you. But God, we know scattered across this world in the wake of this virus have been people who probably loved you more than we do and who have a longer track record of service and sacrifice to you who ultimately are with you now in heaven because of this virus. It would be so easy for us to just try to stick our head in the sand and to just nonchalantly say that you'll take care of us. But God, we have to understand that there is a strong likelihood you will take care of us in exactly the way we hope for. But Lord, there is also a possibility because we live in a fallen world that it might not go as easily as we would have hoped. But Lord, if it doesn't, we will not be without hope and we will not be without the assurance that you're with us. And we are not without the assurance that you've got something better waiting for us for all of eternity. And so, Lord, we don't live in fear. 
God, we don't, we don't live unwisely. We don't go running out into traffic just because you're in control of everything. Lord, we still live wisely. We still live with precaution and we still love our neighbor like ourself. But God, we don't have to be slaves to fear or anxiety or worry because you, you've got all this. But Lord, you look at it from a big picture, eternal perspective. Whereas all we tend to see is a virus is coming. (laughs) And so God, help us when we leave this place to make the right decisions, to live wisely. There There may be a time where we don't gather together corporately as a church in this setting because it's the best thing to do. We don't know. But God, when we leave this place, may we leave not only living wisely with precaution, but may we also leave with that sense of hope and joy. That God, you are one who works all things out for good, even the worst of hardship and tribulation and peril. And so God, we thank you that it only comes through a relationship with Jesus. And God, I pray that you'll affirm our faith in these days to come. And God, for those here this morning who don't know you, Lord, right where they sit, may they for the first time embrace the truth that Jesus, God himself, came and died just for their sin because that is the biggest problem that we all face. And may they not only embrace the truth that he died and that he rose, but may they also choose to lay down their sin right now today and to invite Jesus to come and forgive and to take over. And so, God, we thank you for the new lives that may start even today in this place. Help us to walk like people who win. Help us to walk like people who know the end of the story. Help us to walk like people who trust you and who trust whatever you do for us in the days to come. So, God, we praise you for the God that you are. Bless now our decisions and our response. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.